You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. traditional marriage, which it's my stance that this is just as essential for good apologetics today, because if we're going to defend marriage, we have to be living it well, and it takes a lot of work. Thankfully, we've got a lot of people who have been helping us out, and two of those people are my guests today, a husband and wife team, Malin and Kay Yorkovich. Now, if you've ever listened to New Life Live, you might be familiar with those names, because I know at least Malin is on there quite regularly. So let's hear about them. Kay is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She enjoyed her role as a stay-at-home mom for many years and completed her master's degree in marriage and family counseling in 1993. Her specialty is treating couples using attachment theory as a foundation of her work with clients. Kay and her husband, Mylon, co-authored two books, How We Love and How We Love Our Kids. Kay is a popular speaker and lecturer in the areas of parenting and marriage relationships and supervises and trains other therapists. Kay also enjoys participating in a prison ministry. She renews herself through ceramics, watercolor painting, and designing jewelry. She is happiest sitting on the beach with a good book and a cup of Starbucks coffee. So, uh, Kay, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Nick. Mm -hmm. And as for Malin, Reverend Malin Yorkovich is a pastoral counselor and an ordained minister. He has a master's degree in biblical studies and a California teaching credential. He has worked with couples and families for over 30 years. In 2003, he became full-time director of Relationship 180, a nonprofit organization that has developed counseling individuals and families toward healthy relationships. Mine and his wife, Kay, have co-authored two books, How We Love and How We Love Our Kids. They speak together across the U.S. and internationally on marriage, parenting, and relational theology. Currently, Marlon works primarily as couples doing marriage therapy. He is a Bible teacher and and lectures extensively on relational theology and is a radio co-host at New Life Ministries of Stephen Arderburn, a nationwide counseling talk show. You can find that at newlife.com. In his spare time, Marlon enjoys martial arts, biking, and playing guitar. Welcome to the show, Marlon. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be with you. May I ask uh, what style of martial arts you studied? Um, uh, Kung Fu. It's um, Southern uh, Chinese Kung Fu. It's oh, called uh, okay. Kung Fu San Su. Mm-hmm. Okay. I used to study Ishinru several years ago. So. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. Now, my audience has got to know how you, your academic life works and such, but how did you all get to be doing what you're doing today? Well, it was sort of I would say a leading from God. We were in the ministry for 12 years and we burned out and we said something's wrong with us, but we don't know what it is. Lord, show us. 
So for the next 12 years, he showed us. And what we learned and what uh, resources he brought to us were so helpful that we decided perhaps it would be something that would help other couples. And so our speaking uh, opportunities turned into a book and then two books. And so the things that really helped us are what our book is about. And Martin, do you have anything you'd add to that? Yeah, I think we've always had a, a passion for coming alongside of people and helping them. Kay and I have been doing that for years, mm-hmm. um, even before we professionally functioned in the capacity of, of counselors and therapists. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would have to say, though, that what we do with people is to help people better understand our journey and realize it's something they can do also. And our book, How We Love, is our story of getting unstuck and then uh, finding ourselves elevating to entirely new places of love and security mm-hmm. uh, in our relationship. And we just want to share that story, and, and we find that people want to hear it. Mm-hmm. Now, do you all agree also with what I had said earlier that, you know, as important as it is in the debate going on for the Supreme Court said that we know what marriage is and why it matters, that it's just as essential to show them that, that, we, def- that we live out marriage? Because I, I really think one of the biggest mistakes the church did in fact is we keep going after the world for breaking down marriage and I say we did it first we're just as guilty Mm -hmm. well that's I think there's a lot of truth to that Mm -hmm. and I think building a good marriage takes a lot of hard work uh, a lot of risk a lot Mm -hmm. of vulnerability and Mm -hmm. it's you know growth is difficult because you have to do something new that you don't normally do Yeah, and so it's you know, but having a path and understanding where you're broken and why you're broken there helped us really grow and change. And our growth journeys were very different. We were broken in different places. And those are some of the things God revealed along the way. You know, Nick, um, it's fascinating to me that uh, what the Bible says is people will know you are my disciples by your love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so do we have the ability to show that to people? Yep. To me, I, I think people, you can fight for marriage in two ways. You can fight for marriage in the courts and uh, walk up and down the National Mall with a picket sign uh, and protest and, and all kinds of things. Or you can fight day to day in your marriage, um, as Kay and I have learned to do, is to yep. fight for each other and fight for what's right. And actually, it's easier to carry a placard on the National Mall and march up and down. It's it's harder to to have difficult conversations and to trust each other and to um, make the marriage be something that God wants it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does take a lot of work. And usually whenever I counsel men, they'll be very quick to tell me what their wives are doing and say, hey, I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to you. Let's talk about you. And <laughs> yeah, first that's thing right. I, first thing I always say to them is, okay, here's my first question to you. Did you make a covenant? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, okay then we're going to keep that on the table. This is the covenant, not getting out of it. That's I, right. I, I've told my wife, unless we're talking from a more academic perspective, we don't even use the D word around here. Like, of yeah, course. I agree. Yep. Now let's get into the books. I mean, and Alex, my audience, now you're only going to be able to be with us for an hour today, so we'll probably have to give a brief abbreviated version, but it starts with uh, going back and trying to remember something in childhood. It's just, when, was, when you felt comfort and love in childhood. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. 
Yeah, we, we ask a question, do you have a memory of comfort mm-hmm. from the first 18 years or however long you lived with your parents or your caretakers mm-hmm. where you can remember feeling emotionally upset, something was distressing you? In a child's world, it could be a big thing, so a friend moved or you didn't make the team or, mm-hmm. um, you know, you had a fight with your best friend. And a parent could see that you weren't doing well and they sought you out, asked you questions, helped you identify and talk about what was distressing you. And you can say you left experience feeling relief. Mm-hmm. Now, what if you have a hard time remembering such an experience sometimes? Well, if you have a hard time remembering that, then there may not be that you experienced comfort as a steady diet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember as a child uh, having wonderful dinners. My mom was a great cook. And I can remember a, I never felt hungry in my home, and that's not something everybody can say. But if you've had memories of comfort, then you it becomes a part of what you know is a part of your history. And so people can... Uh, um, if they've had comfort, then they know what we're talking about. And what it means is I, I, as a person, am worthy of you, another person, seeing me. I can come to you and ask you for comfort and help mm-hmm. and get it. So there's supposed to be in the body of Christ a, a caring for one another. And there's a lot of people that don't want to ask or are afraid to ask. Mm-hmm. But if we have memories of comfort, we grew up learning to ask and going to people relief instead of things for relief or drugs or alcohol or other ways of finding relief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, some, well, someone's out there saying, hey, well, you know, this sounds very interesting. It's a good question to ask, but what difference does it make? Why does this question matter so much? I mean, are we just getting into some, like, 40 and stuff here, or what exactly? <laughs> good question. Well, it's a very important question because if you have memories of comfort and they're abundant, then you're trained from the time you're very little all through your family to go to people. You're probably allowed to have a wide range of emotion in your home growing up. You could be sad. You could be mad. You could be jealous. Feelings weren't discouraged like they were in my home. tells us that a parent had a sense of awareness about where their children were at and when they were okay and when they weren't okay. And these love lessons all determine how respond in our marriage when we're stressed and we're not okay mm. because life is stressful right yeah the world is you're gonna have tribulation mm-hmm. so how you handle those emotions is really determined and your love lessons come as you're growing up and so you have to really we had to look back and say well what did we learn and we don't know memories of comfort and for the first 15 years of our marriage we really had no idea how to take our stress to each other Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do think it's very important because I, I find whenever I get caught in the stressful situations here, it can often seem like two ships passing in the night. You're just kind of talking past each other because it's not what you say so much, but there's hidden underlying things of how you interpret what is said. And everyone interprets things differently. I think it can all be when we give a mindset of, you know, if you love me, you would do X. Or if you respected me, you would do X. Well, I think, yes. And what you're talking about, two ships passing in the night, mm-hmm. uh, they know that they're there, but they don't really communicate to one another. And mm-hmm. so in most marriages, people really never talk about things. Mm-hmm. They don't, they, 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 
they read each other's minds or they want their mind to be read by the other person. Mm-hmm. But the Bible calls us for a very, to, uh, it calls us to a very robust interpersonal relationship. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to, and we're commanded to love one another. We're commanded mm-hmm. to comfort one another, encourage one another, forgive mm-hmm. one another, yeah. bear one another's burdens, et cetera, et cetera. All these one another's of scripture. And yet, if we've never had memories of comfort, we don't then know how to, we must learn as adults how to bring ourselves into relationship. And that's, that's the essential point of the book. God calls us to something, and if we've had no training in it, we don't have a clue how to bring ourselves into relationships. We're just ships passing in the night. Now, in your book, you have five different styles, and the last two are relating to abuse, though. I want to say the first three, it, it is pretty common to go through and look at them and say, you know, that sounds just like me. And then go to the next one and think, that sounds just like me, because, I mean, very few of us would fall entirely in just one of these categories, would we? Well, you'd be surprised. I think, you know, as we explain these styles, many people will relate more to one. And we say, pick the thing you do the most in your marriage, if you're married. And if you're not married, then pick the thing you do the most in the relationship you most want to change. Yeah. So let's look at these styles here. The first one is the avoider. How, how do you describe an avoider exactly? Well, this was my love style coming into marriage, and it dominated and uh, drove the bus in terms of how I respond relationally. But I grew up in a home where feelings were discouraged. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I cried, my dad got mad. My mom got anxious. Um, my dad was allowed to be angry in my family, but no one else. So there was... Uh, I'm real discouraged. No one ever asked me one time, how do I feel about anything? So I had did not learn to put words to what was internal in my life, to what was inside me. I did not learn to put words to that or describe feelings. Mm-hmm. And task and mastery were applauded. Um, in the home of an avoider, it's more about what you do than what is inside of you. Mm-hmm. So my parents loved me, and we had... Like Mylan said, nice dinners on the table, mm-hmm. but emotionally, I was very disconnected. Mm-hmm. And and how that how that felt to me was is that um, it was more like a ship passing in the night. I love your metaphor. Yeah. It's it's like she I didn't feel fully seen by Kay. Mm-hmm. It was uh, more along the lines of a an existence together where necessarily if I was distressed, she wouldn't pick up on that. Mm-hmm. So avoiders don't have a sense, a strong sense of uh, a, attunement. They don't have a strong sense of, of empathy or compassion for others. They dislike weakness. They dislike neediness. And they tend to want to fix people quickly so that they stop feeling needy. So this is really common. And oh, by the way, Nick, this isn't about gender. Uh, Attachment, which is a part of our book is our book is about attachment research. Uh, Attachment isn't about gender. It's Mm -hmm. about your experience growing up as a child and what that did to set up your experiences for future relationships, even some that are not uh, necessarily conscious uh, drivers in the relationship or so on and so forth. So um, so it could be a male or female emotionally avoidant person. They tend to minimize and fix, 
And um, they and, and if you hurt, they're going to try and fix you quickly and talk you out of your pain. And they don't like their own pain. They don't like yeah. other people's pain. Oh, I just, I was never trained what to do with it. And I, the lessons in my home taught me, if you're not okay, go figure it out, fix yourself, and come back when you're feeling better. Yeah. Don't and, come into relationship for repair. Yeah, I have no memories of comfort. Yeah, and then for Marlon, then I'm guessing the situation Marlon would be to have some sort of pain. And you didn't pick up on it at all, okay? And Marlon would probably think, well, I guess she just doesn't really care about what I'm going through yeah. at all. A lot of people feel like avoiders don't care. Right. And the truth is you have to receive compassion and comfort before you value it. Mm-hmm. So many times avoiders didn't grow up in traumatic homes. They just grew up in homes where they don't even know what they didn't get. I was married 15 years before I realized, you know what, my family did not really bond. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was no emotional connection between my parents or between my sisters and I. And, you know, those are things that seem normal because that's how you grew up. But when you really look back and say, Mm -hmm. well, does does Jesus look like an avoider? Mm Mm-hmm. No, no, he doesn't. He's very emotional. He, he, God has a wide range of emotions, and he tells us exactly how he feels. And Jesus wept in the garden mm-hmm. and asked for help from the Father and from his disciples. And I didn't grow up in a home that taught me to do that. Now, if you are an avoider, what is your advice for a person who is an avoider to help make their marriage better? Well, in the back of How We Love, there's a whole chapter for the avoider, but I'm going to give you just two things here for because we don't have a lot of time. But um, for me, I had to take a feeling word list and put it in my Bible and on my refrigerator and in my journal, and I had to learn to have a vocabulary for feelings. And that, while that sounds very simple, uh, it was a learning curve because I wasn't taught to understand, acknowledge, or describe my feelings. Mm-hmm. So the feeling word list was essential. I could have not learned without it because there would be words there that I would have never picked or thought of. Um, mm-hmm. If you ask an avoider how they are, they basically have one answer. Fine. Fine. Yep. And so, uh, and then the second thing was I had to ask myself, okay, because I feel sad, what do I need? Because I feel scared, what do I need? Because I feel insecure, what do I need? If we don't know what we feel, we won't know what we need. And in my home growing up, uh, independence was encouraged and not dependence. Mm -hmm. So I had to learn to come close and be vulnerable and learn to depend because I missed that whole developmental step growing up. Now, I guess this question is more for mine. What do you do if you're married to an avoider? Well, what I had to do, um, you know, as I had to actually come alongside of Kay at the same time and begin to learn what I was feeling and what my needs were as well. Mm-hmm. And so I had to encourage her to tell me how she felt. And I had to encourage her to give me uh, a feeling. Uh, I had to encourage her to, if I saw that she wasn't looking uh, uh, maybe uh she wasn't looking great. She maybe was uh, distracted or preoccupied or she averted her gaze. I'd say, I just want you to tell me how you feel. Is there anything going on inside? So I encouraged her as I was learning myself. So what's going on in there? What's going on inside? I can't read your mind. Yeah, we did not have a conversation without the feeling word list. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Where, so I invited her into re, into a more substantive relationship, as I would say is, is my most important answer there. I invited her to tell me whatever was on the inside. And sometimes it's not easy to hear what's on the inside, Yeah. but it's important. Well, before we go to the next one, I can remind everyone, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. This Saturday, we got Marilyn and Kay Yorkovich talking about how we love marriage enrichment. But next week, I, I do realize if you're a regular listener from the show, I did kind of forget that January, I usually give to abortion so we're getting back to that and i don't have things nailed down but it looks like my guest will be Lori peters next week no relation there believe it or not but we're going to be talking about about abortion itself for january for roe v wade so now let's get to the next one here and that's the style known as a people pleaser now when i was going through this book i wasn't just trying to identify myself i was trying to figure out who am i married to which sure. I assume you all would, would encourage that we try and do that. And I couldn't figure it out for a while. And then I just remember one night recently my wife was just talking. And she, we weren't even talking about the book. She said, I'm just a people pleaser. Oh, okay. Well, I guess that settles that. And, you know, that sounds really good, a people pleaser. We should all be trying to please people as much as we can and such. I mean, what's, so, what's, what's the problem with a people pleaser exactly? <laughs> well, that's a great question. And But, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us to please one another. Mm-hmm. It tells us to love one another. Okay. And sometimes if I look at the person of Jesus and I listen to the questions he asked people, mm-hmm. I think, you know, that wasn't very pleasing, you know, to the confrontive nature, et cetera, et cetera. So the pleaser, the people pleaser is often a caretaker, mm-hmm. uh, excessively so, a rescuer, excessively so. Mm-hmm. And they feel they have a need to, to if, if other people are distressed, they are distressed. And so they have to make that distress go away by jumping in and attempting to um, uh, alleviate the pain that another person might be having. Jesus was not like that. He could tolerate the distress of other people. When people were upset, he wasn't undone by it. Uh, pleasers are very insecure and uh, so they are caretakers, and, and they have a weak no muscle. They can't say no to people. Uh, they have a hard time with boundaries. They tolerate uh, people using them. And they're insecure, and they need people close to them, and so they do everything they can to appease, and they have a high fear factor. So they always want to be close, and they don't want to ever disappoint people for fear of rejection. They don't ever want to get angry for fear of rejection, and they don't ever want to say no or have different opinions mm-hmm. due to fear of rejection. Now, that doesn't resemble Jesus. Does that make sense? <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm remembering okay, well, something I read in uh, Peter Craig's, I think it was once. I think he attributed to Lewis. I love the following the originals quote here, but it was kind of like an epitaph on a tombstone. I can't get it right exactly because it's like, here lies Mrs. Smith, beloved wife and mother. She gave herself in every way. She lived her life in serving others. Now she has rest, and so have they. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I, well, you know what? There's some truth to that yeah. because being married to a pleaser, you feel like they're always hovering. Mm-hmm. And you know, Mylon would ask me all the time, "Are you okay? Are you mad at me?" Yeah. You know, and no, I'm fine. So, Mylon, you're a pleaser. No, I'm recovering, recovered pleaser. I'm not that way anymore. No, he's not. But that nor, was, is Kay, nor is Kay an avoider anymore. 
But that was your love style coming in, people please. Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. And I, I do I do see that in the background. The fear of rejection is mm-hmm. very huge. And the thing is, people fear rejection not because, in, I mean, generally they do want to please the other people, but they also think, if I don't please this person, what does that say about me? Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the other thing that's very true of the pleaser is they're not really honest because honesty can be difficult. Honesty can be confrontive. Honesty yeah. can hurt someone's feelings. And pleasers feel like that is not okay. Mm-hmm. So when a pleaser asks, how are you? They're not really asking because they want to know how you are. They want you to say, I'm great. I'm wonderful. You're the best spouse ever. Mm-hmm. And then everybody can be happy and on we go. Mm-hmm. So pleasers don't, you know, they, they're relieving their own anxiety because they're not okay if you're not okay. Their, root, their mood rides on the mood of their spouse. Mm-hmm. And trust is very difficult for a pleaser, I'm taking it, because everything seems conditional. Yes. Excellent point. Now, Amon, since you're the one who was a pleaser, what do you recommend people who find themselves in a pleaser category do in marriage? Well, they do two things. They're very codependent, Mm -hmm. um, and they are not honest. Mm -hmm. What do they do to grow, I think you meant? Yeah. What do they do to get out of it? Oh, to, oh, thank you. I'm sorry. I misunderstood. Thank you. Okay. Um, I had to do two things. I, st- I, at first, I had to learn that I could be okay alone, mm-hmm. that I could be okay with the disapproval of other people. Mm-hmm. And that came to me one day when um, I had people very angry at me. I won't go into the details. And I was getting ready to go on a vacation, and I said, you know, my vacation's ruined because somebody's upset with me, and I have no place or no nothing to do about it. Mm-hmm. And we drove for quite some time, and then we got to some to a location, and I spent some time in God's Word, and I was reading in John six how Jesus said some very difficult things, and many many people walked away from him. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't undone by that. He he was able to tolerate the rejection. Mm-hmm. And I, for the first time, even though I'd taught the Bible for many years, I realized Jesus could tolerate rejection. He mm-hmm. had enemies. He is sad, and it meant uh, something to him, obviously, that people rejected him. But it, he wasn't undone by it. He mm-hmm. wasn't rendered weak. He wasn't rendered uh, inefficient. Uh, so he isn't distressed. He cares, but he's not undone by it. So number one, I had to recognize that I, it was a, a place where I needed to grow. Number two, I had to be okay without Kay's approval. Um, and so I had to be able to tolerate that. And then I had to learn to tolerate the ability to be separate. And uh, I made myself practice solitude and uh, be okay in quietness. Now, pleasers don't know their feelings either because they're all focused on you and they're guessing what you feel. But if you ask them, where do you want to go to lunch? They say, wherever you want to go. Mm -hmm. Or if you ask them what they feel, they often don't know. So pleasers and avoiders are alike and that neither one really understand or express feelings well. The difference is the avoider is not undone if someone's mad at them. They can walk away and say, oh, they'll get over it. Whereas the pleaser is really upset when someone's angry with them. Mm-hmm. So, Kay, from your experience, what's your advice if you find that you're married to a pleaser? 
Well, I think, you know, it depends if they want to grow or not. But I think encouraging them to have boundaries and say no, encouraging them, it's okay if you disagree with me, it's okay if you're mad at me, I, it's okay to tell me the truth. Um, those are things that I think can help a pleaser. And, uh, in, you know, knowing what, what growth is going to be beneficial to them and encouraging that. Mm-hmm. Well, before we go to the next love style here, I'd like to take this moment. I know it's a little bit early, but... I don't want to get caught in the next one without doing this. I have to mind everyone, Deeper Waters is a listener-supported ministry, and we really depend on your financial support and encouragement. Now, we're, we're doing some work on the website right now. I think it's back up again, and we could be switching a domain name soon. That's in the works here because we've got a web guy who we've recently found who's doing some superb work for us here. Uh, unfortunately for you all, some of this depends on me using a computer properly, so you, you might want to pray for a miracle to take place here. <laughs> um, um, if you go to our site at deeperwaters.ddns.net, you can find a link and it says Help Support for Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Now, if you click that link, you'll go straight to Risen Jesus Ministries, the ministry of Mike and Debbie Lacona. Those are my in laws. You have gone to the right place. Make a donation. And then you contact me or Mike or Debbie or my wife, Allie, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And they will make sure that it goes to Deeper Waters, that we will get everything, and it will be tax deductible. Now, you can also go online. I've got some books on Amazon, actually, that I've written or co-written, such as uh, Defining Inerrancy, or the one that I wrote myself, the a Creed for the Ages, a look at the Apostles' Creed today, since my church says it regularly. I made that one there, mainly for my own church, so they could have something to be blessed by. And then, here's something that I'm sure my guests will be interested in as well. <clears throat> Talk about marriage enrichment. We've got a link where, where you can support us through jewelry. That's right. You can go and you can click on a Premier Jewel if our friend Lena Cluster there. And the code word is love. Now, guys, uh, Valentine's Day is coming up. Do I need to tell you women love jewelry for the most part? And if you want to have a good Valentine's Day, or maybe if you're thinking of, you know, popping the question on Valentine's Day, you might want to consider getting some jewelry. But why should you do it through Deeper Waters? Because the jewelry would be at the exact same price. It's fine jewelry, wonderful stuff. And whatever you purchase, 25% of that will go to deeper waters. So you go and buy something like, say, a $100 piece of jewelry, like a necklace or something, 25 of that goes to us. And guys, how, how can you lose on that one? You make your woman happy, you have a good Valentine's Day, and you support a ministry at the same time. Now, Mal and Kay, do you have an organization or a cause you'd like to see people donate and support? <clears throat> we have... Okay. A nonprofit counseling center mm-hmm. that a person can make a donation to. It is our counseling center that one of the things we do there, uh, the name of it, by the way, is Relationship 180, mm-hmm. and it's at Relationship 180, Relationship, the number 180.com, is we uh, raise money to help Christian leaders uh, mm-hmm. afford counseling that they might not be able to afford. And so we scholarship and help a lot of people, uh, and that's where uh, our fundraising goes to. Well, that sounds like an excellent cause. I've got it right up here. There is a donate tab up there, and that's tax deductible, isn't it? That's correct. Yes, it is. Okay. 
So go to relationship180thenumbers.com, turning relationships in the right direction. So um, let's go to the next tower, and this was one I wasn't familiar with at all, and a lot of people might not be familiar with the term, but vacillator. What is that? That's a good question. That's the vacillator lifestyle, another word for that might be ambivalent or preoccupied. And a vacillator often grows up in a home where they get enough connection to really like it and want more, mm. but the connection is often more based on the parent's mood or availability rather than the child's need. So these kids are, they get some connection, but then they have to wait for that good thing to happen again. And sometimes mm. the waiting is too long. And so they get mad because they have to wait. And so then there's a conflict inside them. I want you, but I'm mad at you because you're making me wait and you're, you're not giving me enough of what I want. Mm-hmm. And of course, the child isn't really articulating these thoughts. They're, they're just responding to inconsistent connection. And so the vacillator deals with this pain by idealizing the future. And they love the dating age because dating is a lot of time and a lot of attention. And they feel like they're, you know, that love tank that's had been half empty their whole life is getting filled up. Mm -hmm. But, of course, we know when we get married and we have a few kids or Mm -hmm. we have jobs, then we're going to have to wait. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to wait for time and wait for attention. And this is difficult for the vacillator because Mm -hmm. this is a childhood wound for them and waiting is a big trigger. So uh, vacillators want connection, but they get very angry when it's not ideal and Mm. they kind of have an ideal in their mind. And when you don't measure up, they're going to tell you that you don't measure up and tell you why you don't measure up and what you need to do to fix it. And, you know, so they're, they're very other focused uh, in terms of where the problem is. And they often don't understand their history is feeding their reactivity. Yeah. I've, uh, I've said earlier that my wife, would be closest to a people pleaser. I think I am closest to that category, especially since I could add in I'm a, a huge multitasker. So it, it's easy for me to give a connection. But whenever something comes, you know, it's just that perfectionism kicks in. It's like, yeah, let's have it be this way and things of that sort. Uh, well, yeah, the perfectionism is about not feeling pain, really. For the vacillator, yeah. if it's ideal, then I don't have to be disappointed. I don't have to feel empty. Mm-hmm. I don't have to feel misunderstood. I don't have to feel unseen. So the striving for perfection is to avoid pain. Mm-hmm. But, of course, God says the world is broken place. Yeah. And so we're going to feel disappointed and we're going to feel rejected and we're going to feel unseen at times. And that's very difficult. You know, usually vacillators have some degree of abandonment in their history. Sometimes it's blatant, like there was a divorce. Sometimes, like my dad was a vacillator and he could be home, but he wasn't present. Uh, Yes. So... It was very much up to him when connection happened, not up to the needs of his daughters. Marvin, it looks like you had something you wanted to add to that. Am I correct? (laughs) Well, I was just going to say that one of the reasons for perfectionism, whereas the avoider has little emotion on the inside, pleasers have a lot of fear, and vacillators have a lot of shame. And so a part of being shame-based, uh, we ha- a, shame- a vacillator has to be perfect so that there's never a flaw exposed because if they appear less than ideal or their children or their family or the child's grades or 
there's a, a reaction in front of other people or something happens that embarrasses the vacillator. They get very angry because the shame is such a big, has a very big place in their internal world and they're doing everything they can to avoid that shame. So they compensate by perfectionism, the way they look, the way they want their family to behave, the way they want others. And so they're very easily taken back by poor behavior or simply normal behavior of other yeah. people. What does a vacillator do to change things in marriage? Well, Kay's famous uh, one-liner, because Kay is the queen of one-liners, is get sad, not mad. Mm -hmm. uh, or if you're scared, if you you have to, first of all, I think you have to recognize that that Adult life uh, requires that people turn away or look away or avert their gaze or uh, don't pay attention to you. And they're very, Kay was talking about waiting. And what, what waiting is that somebody will see me. And so uh, we have to learn that to be unseen is okay. Uh, that creates a lot of uh, terror inside the child or, or inside the adult because it's reminiscent of the abandonment themes uh, that the child so wants to avoid in adulthood. So you have to first get the idea that not a child anymore, adults have to learn to tolerate an averted gaze where people deselect you. They turn and they look in the other direction to do something else, and then they look back. But if there's a, an ability to consistently look and know that you're going to be seen, I have to adjust to a new norm. Mm -hmm. That would be one important thing that I think. What would you add? Well, vacillators, if you are married to a vacillator, or sometimes even in a friendship, the biggest complaint we get is, I don't like their anger. Mm -hmm. And so the anger is a, is a big problem, and we need to get that feeling word list and go underneath the anger and try and figure out what are the feelings below the anger and to communicate more vulnerable feelings. And then the second would be to ask directly for what you want, which is very hard for the vacillator. They just, if you love them, you would just know and you yeah. would just give it and it would just be the right thing at the right moment. And so vacillators really want connection, but they don't want to be vulnerable to, to receive it. Um, and they feel like if they have to ask specifically, it just spoils the whole thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but in reality, as adults, we have to learn to tell uh, another person what we need and ask for what we need. Now, I guess that answers the question, man, about what you should do if you're married to a vacillator as well. So let's move to the next love styles, which aren't really love styles at all. And think about it. And these two go get together. And uh, I, I really hope there aren't any out there listening, but I'm afraid there are. And that's controller victims. Mm-hmm. Oh, for, there for sure are a lot listening. And the church is full of controllers and victims mm -hmm. because a lot of us grew up in homes that were traumatic. Mm -hmm. um, in this kind of a home, there's fright without solutions. And you might maybe add to that. Well, there's fright without solutions. It's, um, I was listening to a person the other day who said that they were six years old um, and they were on a farm and the, the, the dad asked them to do something around livestock and they, they, they failed. They didn't do the right thing. This, this kid's only six years old. Now, this is the man talking. He's talking about his own childhood. And the child failed, and the dad pulled out a buggy whip because he failed to do things correctly at six years old and, you know, hit him with the buggy whip several times. 
And it actually made the adult that we were talking to recently get teared up because he realized, you know, he would only tell, he said, my dad would only tell you one time and that was it. And so there was a lot of fright. There was no comfort. And there was uh, a place where you weren't given grace and mercy. And there was fright without solutions. Often these homes, the parents are chaotic themselves. It's, they're disorganized. And so it's called a chaotic attachment. Uh, you never know what you're going to get as a child. Or, or it's very highly rigid and legalistic to the point where there's no grace and love. It's just obedience, first-time obedience, and that's all that's valued. Highly controlling. But mm. bottom line, there's a scary parent in this mix. Yeah. Mm. And the more strong-willed kids will usually grow up, and at some point they'll kind of go toe-to-toe with that dominant parent and sometimes literally physically uh, have a battle. And this person, male or female, decides that no one's ever going to control me again. I don't want to feel the humiliation, the terror, um, the insecurity that I felt as a kid. And if I control my world, I'm never going to have to feel that again. And many times controlling people don't really understand that their control is about staying away from vulnerable and painful feelings. Uh, and then the more compliant children become victims. Their goal is to stay under the radar, hide under the bed, um, leave the house, and they they just don't have a voice because having a voice is dangerous. They want to maintain the status quo. Yeah, and they learn to tolerate the intolerable, and it truly is intolerable. But intolerable becomes normal. Yeah. So what if someone's listening about and they realize they're controlled and they say, you know what? I'm very convicted about this. I need to do something. What do they do? I think the first thing they need to do is acknowledge why they're a controller and that it's based upon fear. It's based upon the entirely unpleasant experience of being dominated and harmed as a child. They need to acknowledge the reality of their childhood as having shaped their adult uh, relational uh, patterns, and they need to grieve that. So many people do not want to look back at these horrible childhoods. Uh, they want to say, you know, if I'm in Christ, I'm a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. The reality is uh, God doesn't erase our sea drive. He doesn't erase our histories. He gives us a new position in Christ, but he doesn't erase uh, our experience. He doesn't erase our education. I, I mean, I would like it, Nick, if he could just wipe my slate clean yeah. and start over again, mm -hmm. but he doesn't. He's, this is what sanctification is about. We all have mm -hmm. places where we fall short, even as redeemed persons. So it, it would be to, to acknowledge the reality of why I'm a controller, that I'm really frightened and I don't want to be scared and intimidated again. And so I control others to prevent that from happening. And that would have to be, again, a philosophical start to the change making. And then grief as to what happened. And because grief is an antidote to anger, uh, that is very powerful that isn't quite often given the preeminence it should be. You know, we think of anger management and we think accounting to 10. A lot of times people don't think in anger management that crying. Uh, would be a solution, but yes, it is. Grief is a way we, we okay. grow out of the past. Now, if you're a victim, what do you do? Well, again, neither of these have any compassion for the child they once were. Right. Uh, you're just surviving this childhood, and there's no one to go to to cry tears or to say you're scared, and there's no one protecting you. 
So to go back and uh, find people in your adult life that can listen to those painful stories and particularly, hopefully, your spouse. Um, you know, we say you should have a PhD in your spouse's childhood because until you understand their childhood, you don't really know them very well mm. because so much of what they do in the present is based on what their experiences were as a child. So the victim needs to learn to have compassion for the injuries that they suffered and also uh, learn to have a voice. Um, learn to stand up for oneself. That's very difficult for the victim because it, you know, they could have been either harmed or you know, I've had many clients that were actually afraid they would have been killed mm-hmm. if, some, if they sad, stood up. Some sad cases you might actually have to call the authorities. Yeah, absolutely. This is one case where many times the, this pattern perpetuates through generations. Um, but victims stay with controllers because they've learned to tolerate the intolerable, and it's now normal. And I mean, they don't often have the confidence to to say, "I don't deserve this kind of treatment." So it it can be a very frustrating pattern between these two. Um, but we've seen some wonderful growth when people are willing to own that indeed they were harmed in their childhoods and it's still affecting them. We all need to own that. And we're not saying our parents didn't love us. I've only worked with a few families where I say the parents were actually evil. I've worked with those families. Generally, parents do the best they can. And our goal is not to bash parents and say it's all their fault and they're responsible. The goal is to say, where am I broken and not growing up? Where did I not develop optimally in terms of the ability to emotionally connect? How do I grow in areas where I wasn't really taught um, everything I needed to mm-hmm. be a successful adult? And now let's go to a little bit of application because we only got about 11 minutes or so left of discussion time, 10 minutes so now. Um, I actually have a men's group on Facebook for men who are, Christians and dating and married or engaged or just hoping to do any one of those someday but maybe those of us who are married can help one another and also help those out who will be married someday and lo and behold I'm, I'm sure this will be a shock to you but one of the biggest topics that's discussed in a men's group relating to marriage is sex now I, I'm sure your minds are just blown by that, that that's what oh that's so met. surprising oh, yeah shocked shocked absolute shock how does all this apply to that area that's a great question. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to start? Well, it applies in every way because for the first 15 years of our marriage, we were trying to have a sexual relationship and with the goal being naked and not ashamed when, mm-hmm. in fact, we couldn't be emotionally naked and not ashamed in any way. Yep. So the more we learn to connect on an emotional level and many times the first places that we learned to comfort each other were over painful childhood memories. Mm-hmm. And as we shared those and learned to be vulnerable in an emotional way mm-hmm. and let down that guard and let people see, let my husband see the wounded places and the places that weren't so pretty, uh, that put a sense of security and, and uh, a deep intimacy on an emotional level that translated over into the sexual arena. But many men just want to have a lot of sex without ever yeah. having an emotional connection. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I hear that in some ways, but also at the same time, I think many of us men would say, you know, it, it can be nice to have it, but it's even nicer when we do have that connection with our wives, when we know that our wives want us for us, not just saying, well, I'm doing a duty and, sac- and fulfilling a need for you. 
Well, that's right. And so now you're going to say, all right, I have a wife that is distant and dutiful and obligatory sex is what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. as opposed to I love you, husband. And, you know, the Bible tells us to love our wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And the way that I learned was the most significant way to give myself up for my wife and love her was to listen to her mm-hmm. and to invite her to bring her emotions, everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly into relationship with me and then to love her there. When that happens, bonding takes place, connection takes place, um, attraction takes place, and then all of a sudden I'm not obligatory anymore if I'm the wife. I, mm-hmm. I and, and then this kind of a discussion also, Nick, allows us to negotiate sex. We talk a lot about sex. We talk about, would this be a good time? Do you feel like having sex this weekend? Or something like that. So many men and women never talk about it. They just hope, you know, that it's going to happen. Or we never negotiate uh, an approach to sex. So all this experience that we had in terms of being able to learn to talk to one another enhanced our sexual negotiation skills and emotional closeness so that we weren't dutiful and obligatory. I really like what she said, especially along with what Kay said about how there are such emotional needs because the, the joke that it happens for a lot of men, and yeah, I could say that some ways that sex is the answer to everything. I'm really depressed. Cheer me up with sex. I, I'm really lonely. I, I need sex for comfort. I, I'm really happy. Let's celebrate with sex. And it, it's the answer everything and at the same time usually we don't listen because most men are fine with just you know skipping to the main event as that's right and I've I've told men sex begins at breakfast well that's true but it also it also is an adjustment of expectation men are visually stimulated Mm -hmm. Uh, you know men are their desire levels for most men some exceptions are always turned on and ready to go and they think if their wife isn't in the same place, there's something wrong. Right. And it's like, but women aren't visually stimulated. And mm-hmm. women usually don't start a sexual encounter with a high level of arousal. The arousal comes after the foreplay. Yeah. And so men mistake, uh, you know, they think that the woman should be like me and then everything's okay. And yeah. men and women aren't made alike. And mm-hmm. accepting those differences is really important. And I'm thinking right now when you said that about the differences in the drives that uh, there was a pastor whose name is Mark Gunger. He he has a thing out, Laugh Your Way to a Better Marriage. You might have heard of it. And we've got his DVDs and he's got a talk. Where he says, now, you know, some of you men, you're married to wives who have a drive just as great as you do. They they want it constantly. They can't get enough of it. And I think I speak on behalf of all men when I say we hate you. <laughs> yeah, well... You know, usually what we find is when the woman is saying her sex drive is higher, she's a vacillator and her husband's an avoider. Mm -hmm. And so she's looking for any kind of connection, and the avoider is, you know, doesn't have enough connection growing up to know how to give it. Mm -hmm. So um, we can, we can, you know, we can make some funny jokes about it, but it's a very painful experience Mm -hmm. for couples when they can't negotiate those desire differences successfully. You know, um, when we talk about, you just use the word sex drive, and um, I delineate what is driving sex. And Kay just mentioned that a lot of people use sex to create closeness. It's not just a purely hormonal drive. It's an emotional Mm -hmm. uh, attempt. 
uh, to, to connect, especially based out of insecurity. And so a woman might look like she has a higher sex drive, but really it's a highly insecure person who's looking for connection to appease that, that, that anxious, worried soul. The other thing, uh, Nick, is, is that men use, like you said, they can use sex for everything. And what happens is, is that it happens that men use pornography a lot and illicit types of sex to turn to appease. So men have to learn that there's other ways to satisfy a, a distraught soul than to just turn to sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I really do wonder because, I mean, there is a sense that we are supposed to connect through sexuality. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that Paul says in First Corinthians 7, he says, hey, yeah, don't deprive yourselves of one another, but if you do that, do it only for a short time and an agreed time, then come together so that you won't be tempted. And I mean, he's pretty much saying, you got to do this regularly or you're not going to be connected. Well, uh, let me ask you a question. How many men do you know have said, honey, let's not have sex for um, this week and let's just really pray about this matter? No, and then I'm after a week or two weeks, we'll come back together again. How many men do you know that have ever said that? Well, you all were talking to me before, so you found I'm very good at math. So we do this, carry on. <laughs> oh, zero. <laughs> zero. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, all men love to use that verse. You can't deprive me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, it's like, well, what the verse is saying is sometimes prayer should be more important than sex. Mm-hmm. And it's also saying, I agree with you, that we shouldn't have a, a you know, a, we shouldn't be have a history of deprivation in our marriage. It's mm-hmm. just a signal that something's wrong. There's a message to both sexes in there, isn't there? Yes, there is. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think the message that a lot of women can realize, because even about how the men don't understand how the woman thinks, that the woman, women don't often understand how we men can think. Because for a man, if he gets turned down a lot, it's kind of like, I'm being rejected as a man. I'm not being accepted as a man. I'm not good enough. Yeah, of course. It's a complicated area. Mm-hmm. And a lot of couples get stuck here, and it takes some honest, vulnerable uh, conversations and sometimes some real work to find um, acceptance and and you know something that's going to work for both people. Mm-hmm. Something I've seen consistently with a lot of men. Some men haven't told me this, but uh, it, it's a position I agree with. Say which is better, intimacy or sex? I'll say intimacy is better, but then I also say but some of the best intimacy does come through sex. Well, both are important. Right. I would agree. I would say, you know, most men think that intimacy equals sex, right. uh, and it does not. It does. Uh, emotional intimacy enhanced our sexual life dramatically. Mm-hmm. Crying in my husband's arms was way more difficult than a sexual encounter in terms of intimacy. Yeah. It, it, it is kind of like a circle, though, that the sex leads to intimacy, the intimacy leads to sex, the sex leads to intimacy. Is that the way it it works? Sex enhances intimacy in the sense that people that, uh, well, let me start over again. Sex enhances intimacy because um, when we have sex, comforting hormones are released in our brain, and sometimes we we end up creating a tremendous amount of warmth and connection Mm -hmm. in the relationship, and sex can create that. Um, So without that, you know, the without that uh, sex, then there is, then the lack of this bonding hormone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Guys, I'd like to thank you for coming on, but unfortunately we're getting near to the end of the hour. But I'd like to let everyone know the book is How We Love. Now, I'm looking on Amazon, and we've got an oddity here. The Kindle version is actually the most expensive one, and that's $9.99. But you can get the hardcover for $6 or the paperback for $8.98. Now, that's at this time. That's, of course, subject to change depending on me coming on. But it's a good book, and there's a quiz at their website as well you can take. So you can kind of help further narrow yourself down. I think I got like what's this fifty, fifty, fifty six on mine. So, um do you are tell us a bit about your website if you have any other way of people get in touch with you, a blog or anything else? Well we have uh howwelove dot com is our website mm-hmm. and there's a lot of resources on there to help people with what we've been talking about and um we would encourage you just to explore the website and all the resources that are available there. And uh, you can also contact us through the contact page. We answer those emails personally. Mm-hmm. And do you have anything you'd like to add to that, Marvin? Well, I think one of the things that a resource that's quite interesting that you can find on our website is what happens when you put these uh, love styles together. Mm-hmm. You create very predictable patterns that we can chart out on a piece of paper and have a couple walk through it around a a circle. And then they laugh because they go, yes, this is what we do. How do you know? And many of the relational problems we see, we see just over and over and over again, because when you combine these, you get about seven basic core patterns that every couple walks through. And the good news is uh, we know your patterns well. And, um, And in our book, How We Love, we talk about that in the section, Duets That Damage. When you uh, walk together in a duet uh, as a couple, it can be damaging because it starts a cyclical negative pattern. And uh, our book, the the third half of the book is about, I'm sorry, the third last third of the book is about how to get out of that by using what we call the comfort circle. So it's not just to find these attachment styles, it's to say, which one am I so I can grow out of that and we can have something different in our marriage. Mm-hmm. Do you all have any uh, final words you'd like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience? Well, that these lifestyles also apply to parenting, and we have a six-hour workshop on our website on DVD about how we love our kids, and then we actually have a six-hour workshop on how we love sexually and how these lifestyles affect our sexual propensities. So those are good resources, and we appreciate your time and having us on your show. I'm glad to have you, and I hope we'll really see you back here again sometime. We would be delighted. Well, I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have someone talk about abortion right now. It looks like Lori Peters could be the most likely guest. Nothing written in stone, but that looks like to be way that I'm naming for now. I'm Nick Peters with Deeper Waters Podcast, and I am signing off.